0: Amen. That's good stuff. For God so loved the world. Amen. That's good. The question was asked, how do we know God loves us? Well, He tells us. Makes it very clear. And then He shows us in a number of ways. Amen. Often and always. we're certainly glad for that. I uh, was... um, You know it's coming, don't you, singles? (laughs) They know it's coming. All right. All right. Now, again, you know... We're pretty blunt in the class. <coughs> we get we get right to the nitty gritty of things, and um, we want to be politically correct today. So I'm going to say, two um, folks that weren't quite up to par intellectually. <coughs> we we didn't put it that way in class, but they were on a roof and they were um, they were on the roof of a house. They were laying tiles and. Uh, when all of a sudden a big gust of wind just, I mean, came along and blew their ladder down. Just blew the ladder right off the side of the house there. And the one guy, he says, you know, how in the world are we going to get down now? How are we going to get down? He says, I got an idea. I'll throw you down. Then you can pick up the ladder. <laughs> you think I'm stupid or something? There ain't no way in the world. I got a better idea. Here it is. I'll shine my flashlight, and you can climb down on the beam of light. Wait a minute. You think I'm stupid? You'll just turn off the flashlight when I'm halfway down. See, I told you they were a little slow. This guy, he was standing on his, uh, his buddy's shoulders trying to measure a flagpole. And uh, this other guy, he comes walking by, he sees them, you know, trying to measure it and all and how difficult it is. And he cries out, he says, hey, why don't you guys just take down the pole and lay it on the ground and measure it? Leave it to the professionals, pal. Anyway, we don't want to measure the length, we want to measure the height. (laughs) I think their names were the Three Stooges. Now I'm back on. I'm off. I'm on. Okay, there we go. All right, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. Obviously, somebody didn't like the jokes. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. A mind to work. A mind to work. That's our theme this year. And, of course, we start our series. We'll touch on that very briefly here in our intro. But... In Nehemiah Nehemiah 4, verse 6, we're just going to look at the one verse, and then we'll go ahead and kick things off again, give you a little bit of background and move along with the, the next in the series. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, we read simply this, So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. To work. Now, again, we said that Nehemiah, the actual book, was a post-exilic book, or means an after-the-exile book. And so, again, we're talking about exile, Babylonian captivity, if you will. Israel went into Babylonian captivity in 606 B.C. They spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity until 536. And, of course, there was a rebuilding <clears throat> of the temple that took place after that captivity back in 536 with a decree of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel led a group of people. Ezra ultimately established the temple and its worship. And then uh, some time passed. And we now come to this particular book, Nehemiah, in which he, in 445 B.C., leads another group back uh, to assist and to aid and to ultimately rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So the temple's intact. And uh, worship has started, it's kind of been off and on here and there, and uh, all of a sudden he goes back to once again establish the walls, to rebuild the walls, to provide protection for the people of God there in Jerusalem now. Remember Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed, and now it's being rebuilt, and Nehemiah is one of those men involved in that rebuilding process, and that's where we take our passage from. So the setting is there in Jerusalem now, they're in a rebuilding process, and uh, the Bible tells us there, so built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together into the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Now again, this rebuilding of the wall, again, as we noted last week, came with tremendous opposition. It uh, It was not greeted with open arms by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, if anything, it was hated, it was despised. Uh, In Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 10, the Bible tells us that when Samballad the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. They were unhappy because there was just somebody that even cared enough to come and to rebuild the walls. They cared enough about the people to provide them with some protection. They cared enough to even take the time to leave his homeland, come and help and aid them in establishing their community. They hated that. And they'd go on to mock and make fun of their efforts as they tried to build the wall. Their hatred for the work of God continued to just increase and grow and grow and grow throughout the entire process. Ultimately, they enlisted others to try to help them to discourage and ultimately to destroy the people of God, the walls that were being built and so forth. But in spite of it all, in spite of it all, the progress continued. The threat of battle the threat of, of, of harm and hurt to them, themselves, their families, certainly existed. But they continued to work until finally the wall was completed. And we come to our text, of course. And that's how you say, how in the world could it have been completed? How could they have possibly gotten through all the hardships, the opposition, the difficulties that came? Well, the Bible tells us here in our passage, the people had a mind to work. Even as Nehemiah and the people of God face tremendous opposition, fulfilling the purpose and plan of God for their lives and in their day, so we're going to face opposition as well. It's just a given. Take your Bible, turn to Jude chapter 1 verse 3, please. Jude chapter 1 verse 3. Go to Revelation and go backwards to the book prior to that and one book back. And you found Jude. It's a tiny little book. So if you're looking for it to read it, you're going to miss it. It's tiny. It's one chapter long. Jude. We're going to look at one verse there in Jude. Verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Again, that passage is written for us today. We're to earnestly contend for the faith. We're to build the faith. We're to do something with faith. This contending for the faith has to do with the means that it means to strive or to strive against, to struggle in opposition. Here in the passage in Jude, it means to strive, to use earnest efforts to obtain or to defend or preserve. So the implication, as we mentioned last week and as we're reminded this week, is that faith requires a constant amount of effort to be exercised in order to ensure that its existence continues. We've got to strive to obtain it, defend it, and preserve it. Why? Because faith will continually be attacked. And there are a number of enemies of the faith. Last week we began our series entitled A Mind to Work for the Faith, and we considered this element or this 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 topic elements of the faith. We said that some of the elements of the faith were, first of all, faith is a person, faith is a perspective. Faith is a practice. Today, however, this week, we want to consider this theme. A mind to work for the faith, enemies of the faith. There are going to be some enemies of the faith. Just like there were enemies in Nehemiah's day, there will be enemies in our day. Even you know, as there were those that opposed the plan and purpose of God in that day, there are those that oppose the purpose and plan of God in our day. And the faith is something that God tells us to contend for. We're going to have to put forth some effort. We're going to need a mind to work if we're going to protect, preserve, and prolong the faith. So today, I want to share this theme, enemies of the faith. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We need you today. We're thankful for all you've done for us, all that you do for us. In these next few moments, may you use these words from the Word of God. And, Father, uh, the words that you put on my heart to share with others. Father, may they, Father, be right out of your Word. May they be right out of your mind. And, Father, may they truly encourage and, and, and just exhort and equip people for the work of God. May we have a mind to work here as well. May we not allow the enemies of the faith to discourage us from not only living the faith... But preserving the faith. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. First of all, as we talk about the enemies, enemies of the faith, it won't be an exhaustive list. Obviously, we could continue to expand on this, but let me just share what I would consider maybe four of the most common or four or possibly four of the uh, maybe more popular ones that we may think of. Number one, excuse me, I didn't cough, I, just so you know. Sick, I know. Very sick. Satan. That's why I did it. It's sick. He's sick. Okay, but anyway. Enemies of the faith. Satan. Satan. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is an enemy. An enemy of the faith. Not only is he your enemy and mine, but he's an enemy of the faith. First of all, I want to notice conceit. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 14. They say the best way to defend yourself against an enemy is to what? Know your enemy. Let's just get to know him just a little bit, just a little bit today. We don't have a lot of time, but notice in the book of Isaiah chapter 14, if you go back to Isaiah, it's kind of toward the middle of the Bible. It's one of the bigger books. We probably should find it, I think, probably a little easier than some. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Here we're going, to, we're going to learn something about our enemy. We're going to learn something about his conceit. Chapter 14, verse 12. The Bible simply says this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Lucifer is the name of Satan prior to his fall. How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? I read a few extra verses because I don't want you in any way to think That this guy comes out on top. He loses. But nonetheless I see and note his conceit. We talk about pride. This is definitely a, a perfect picture of pride. Every man, every woman, every boy and every girl in this room. Wars with the exact same problem that Satan had. Pride. And in this particular case. He goes on to even say. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. We have religions in our world today that are trying to elevate man within, at least, being gods. You're all really gods inside. You all really have a spark of deity. No, I am human, and I am just a man, and I am made of clay, and I will one day go into the ground, and I will, dis- I will turn into dust, and that's where it ends, with the exception of my soul. And I'll go to heaven or hell, based on my decision on what I've done with Jesus Christ and Him alone. But the fact is, is that his conceit was so great, so big, that he even thought he could be like God himself. He wanted to dethrone God and step onto the throne and become God of all. We see his conceit. We notice character in John chapter 8, verse 44. Turn there, please. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 8, verse 44. It says here concerning his character. Ye are of your father the devil. The lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to the religious elite. And they thinking and believing themselves to be so spiritual and so godly are confronted with the reality, according to Christ now, who is God in flesh, that they are not God's children, but instead the devil's. They had no faith in him. They did not believe that he was Messiah. They had no real recollection of the fact that he, born in a stable, growing to be a man, living a sinless, perfect life, ultimately would die on a cross and give his life on their behalf. They had no idea that Jesus was the Messiah, the one, the anointed, that he was Emmanuel, God with us. They rejected him. They ultimately hung him on Calvary. They cried, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus said, you've got it all mixed up, friend. I love you, but I can't get you to heaven. You're going to have to have faith in me. I can do it if you have faith in me, but you can't have faith in a system. You have to have faith in a Savior, and I'm the Savior. And so, unfortunately, you may think yourself to be serving God, but you're really serving your father, the devil. And your father, he was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. Why? Because he's a liar and the father of it. That's the character that we see of Satan. He is a liar. He has no character at all. The devil will go to any length to wound the faith. Any length. We see him in the Garden of Eden, lying to Eve about God's love and care. Oh, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. Oh, God doesn't want you to realize that if you'll just eat of the fruit, you can be like him. He's trying to hold you back. He's trying to cause you to have, you know, have to live the Christian life, actually have to possess some standards, actually have to live holy. He doesn't want you to be eating the fruit because you'll ultimately be like him. And then you'll know everything he knows and you'll be as powerful as he is and you'll have freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And that's still the lie he sells young people and adults alike today. He's just holding you back because he really doesn't care. It's all about him, the selfish God he is. We observe the world before the flood. And we realize that the devil had infected them with self and sin. He lied to them. We're saddened by his influence in King Herod's life which ultimately led to the death of every child that was two years old and younger prior to the the birth of Jesus. In order to snuff out the Savior, in order to get rid of Jesus Christ, he goes ahead and massacres all the children to and below. Satan is the murderer from the beginning, and he continues to try to seek to murder, to deceive, to destroy anyone or anything that stands for the faith. We read how he enters into the hearts of even Ananias and Sapphira who promised a piece of property and ultimately lied and said, Oh, oh, we only received this much, not that much. Satan, the Bible says, entered into their heart. He lied to them. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a murderer. He has no character. His conceit is character. And finally, we notice craving in John chapter 10, verse 10. Turn there if you would. You're already in, John, just a few pages over. John chapter 10, verse 10. The Bible says, The thief cometh not before to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus says, I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. It almost reads like a proverb, does it not? On one hand, on the other. And on one hand, the thief, referring to none other than G- uh, the, the God of this world, Satan, it says that he cometh before to steal and to kill and to destroy. Fits his character perfectly, does it not? Jesus, on the other hand, comes that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Satan only wants sorrow for you, he only wants heartache for you. He is the master at the old bait and switch tactic. He says, look how beautiful and wonderful it would be if you could only possess this, if you could only embrace this, if you could only indulge in this. And then when you take it, he says, oh, oh, hold on. It comes with some strings attached. That's the little writing, the small print he doesn't share with you. The old bait and switch. No, really, this is what you're getting instead. That's just... The face of it. So we see, first of all, an enemy of the faith is none other than Satan himself. But number two, another enemy of the faith is science. Now, when I say science, let me clarify by maybe putting another word before it bad science. Let me be very careful. Bad science. See, again, we need to understand that there have been tremendous advancements in medicine and technology that have appeared at least, from my perspective and probably yours, to have benefited all mankind. I guess in eternity we'll really know whether or not they truly benefited us that much or not. But the fact is is that it certainly appears to me that science can offer us, through technology and other means, some very positive change. But not all science, as we noted, is bad. That's true. But there is bad science, and bad science is the enemy of Satan, with uh, enemy of faith without a doubt. John chapter 17 verse 17 says, "Sanctify them through thy truth." Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So what the Bible teaches us is that the word of God, that which we hold in our hand in the King James Bible, is indeed the truth. It is the truth. Bound in its uh, pages are truth. You want to know truth? You open the Word of God. You want to know what's true? You dig into the Word of God. You want to know what's true? You take the time to read, study, prepare, and glean from this book, the Word of God. When the findings of so-called science challenge the truth or truths found in this Word, this book, God's Word, then science is off, and this is still right on target. And you say, but they're very intelligent men and women who have studied for years that have found findings that go contrary to the word of God. They've done extensive studies and research to find that there are portions of this book that are no longer true. I just wonder how many of them are smarter than God. Who not only created the methodology and the ability that they even have to do the surveys and the studies that they do, let alone create the universe as he did. In Romans chapter 1 verse 22, the Bible says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Anytime a man or woman says that they know more than this book or that they found a better way than God describes, they become the fool because of too much learning. Probably the biggest effort that science has had on our world to do damage to the faith would be a theory that we call evolution. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 20, the Bible says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and opposition, get it now, oppositions of science, falsely so-called. Well, I'll tell you what, use the word science and people go, what? Oh, that must be real then. That must be true. Oh, I mean, these people, they're smart, a lot smarter than me. If he says that's how it is, then that must be how it is. Because I certainly wouldn't know the difference. Like their credentials determine or automatically say they're right. He says science that is applied to this theory. Is science false, least so-called? It is false indeed. Evolution is the theory that all forms of life as we know them today come from one common ancestor. You know, we accuse Darwin of being the first to launch out into the murky waters of evolution. But long before Christ's birth, I mean long before, in 520 B.C., there was a Greek philosopher by the name of Anaximander. He was of Miletus. He wrote a text that was, that was t- entitled, on nature, in which he introduced an idea that sounds very similar to evolution. You tell me if it sounds similar. He stated that life started as slime in the oceans and eventually moved to drier places. He also brought up the idea that species evolve over time. Sound familiar? Isn't it funny how there's really nothing new? We just take the old and rehash it, relabel it, repackage it. The first court case over the teaching of evolution occurred in 1925 with the trial of Scopes versus the state of Tennessee. Uh, I mean, think about that. 1925 was the first time that this element of evolution was ever brought up, really, in society, ever tested, really. And and what was the outcome? Well, the Tennessee Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality, upheld the constitutionality of a law prohibiting the teaching of human evolution. They said it was constitutional to prohibit the teaching of evolution. So it remained illegal in Tennessee until 1967. The first major court battle that ruled in favor of evolution was decided in 1968. Wasn't our country very grounded, solid, very... Secure at that point in our history. Weren't we solid? Remember people running around with peace signs and in vans, crying out love, not war, peace, not war. Had all kind of problems in the late 60s and early 70s in our country. People smoking marijuana, people getting high on all kinds of drugs, LSD, all kind of different things. Oh, all of a sudden now, notice what's going to happen to our culture too. It seems to go right into the court system. It's interesting to me how it all parallels. But notice it says, that we find out that when the United States Supreme Court ruled in Epperson versus Arkansas, that the state statute prohibiting the teaching of evolution was unconstitutional now because it catered to a religious doctrine. They didn't notice that back in the the, the 20s, but they noticed it now in the late 60s. Therefore, it violated the establishment clause, they said, of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. What was the result then of this embracing of evolution? Just this one decision. How did it affect our world? How did it affect our society? Well, every school-age child became inundated and saturated with the teachings of Darwin and his theory of evolution. Every one of them. Including myself. The theory of evolution offered up an explanation, finally. Concerning the origin of both the universe and mankind that virtually made God obsolete and essentially shut the book on Genesis. That's what it did. You don't have to believe in God anymore. You don't have to believe in the book of Genesis. I mean, are you kidding me? Due to Darwin's theory of evolution and evolution being taught as an absolute fact in schools. Or I remember years ago how they'd say the theory, and then pretty soon they dropped the theory part and just talked about evolution now. As though it was scientific fact. That generation has been conditioned to believe that there's no universal morality declared by a deity any longer. That only culturally conditioned values, of course they vary from place to place and situation to situation, now rules the roost. So now situational ethics determine whether or not something is right or wrong, not a standard of morality that was outlined in the Word of God now. Because the book's been thrown out. Because there's no need for God because He didn't do anything anyway. Evolution is the reason you're here today. Prominent evolutionary biologist and historian William Provine Provine of Cornell University he spelled it out pretty explicitly uh, whether Darwin was true or not what it would really mean he made this he said this he said here's what it would mean if it's true here's what it means if if Darwinian evolution is true here it is there's no evidence for God there's no life after death. If it's true, there's no absolute foundation for right and wrong. If evolution is true, as outlined by Darwin, then there's no ultimate meaning for life. And finally, people really don't have free will at all. Because they're just creatures of their innate ability, what they are inside, they're animals. Just like any other animal can't control themselves, they can't either. So don't expect young people not to have sex. Because there's no way they can say no. They're just biological beings. That's exactly where it goes. That, that's, that's, and he was right. That's, he's exactly right. By their own admission, referring to scientists, science is diametrically opposed to the faith. That's all there is to it. No true believer can honestly believe. No true believer, listen to me, can honestly believe Believe or support a theory that denies God and dismisses his role in our world and our lives. You tell me you believe in evolution, don't tell me you're a child of God. Please don't tell me that. If I put my hands together, you hear a clap, don't you? What if I didn't have any hands? Well, there'd be no sound, would there? (laughs) Evolution says that the sound comes from nothing, though. The sound comes from nothing. That makes no sense at all. There was a popular song in the 70s started off, and it started off by saying this, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You've heard it. You've been in a mall anywhere. You've had to have heard it. then there's another thing that when they say later, something from nothing leads nothing and all that. But it seems to me that the 70 songwriter has a better handle on truth than many modern day philosophers and scientists. Still, according to evolutionary biologist Ernest Meyer, he says, No educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we now know to be a simple fact. There you go. You know what he just said to all of us today that believe in creation? Idiots. You're idiots. What's your problem? You stupid? You really believe the, the ridiculous truth found in Genesis 1-1? Are you an idiot? That's exactly what he does. And that's what he believes about you and I too. Don't let, Oh, he's an arrogant little sucker. Let me tell you that. He has no room for you to have your own beliefs. See, that's the one thing about b- believers in Christ. We give people the opportunity to at least believe what they want. I don't go around throwing darts at him and I don't go around putting his picture up on a, on a, a, a mirror and, and throwing rotten tomatoes at it. I don't, I don't go around trying to tell him he has no right to believe what he wants. No, he has every right to believe what he wants. But it bothers me that because I believe what I believe, he wants to say I'm an idiot. And he wants to tell my children I'm stupid. And he wants to prove to them that I have no bearing or no basis for my faith, that he's right and everybody else is wrong. And if you young people and you children in my classrooms don't want to agree with me, then you're stupid just like your dumb parents. That's exactly what they're teaching in those those classes. You say, I don't agree with it. I don't believe in it. Well, you better do something about it. But let me tell you what, science is an enemy of the faith. There there are scientists, praise God, who are good scientists, that will will not dismiss this book. They won't. Praise God for a scientist. Praise God for a teacher. Praise God for a, a person in the midst of our culture and society, whether it's politics or any other area, that says, you know what? You can think me to be ignorant. You can think me to be stupid. But I'm going to hold on to this whole book. Amen. I like Amen. it. I like it a lot. Number three, another enemy. You say, boy, you're kind of getting kind of brash today. No, I, I, I'm telling you, you, it's a serious business. Our, our faith that we call the Christian faith in Christ who is, is raised bodily, he rose bodily. It's not a figment of anybody's imagination here. The world hates that belief and that system. Just like the Jewish priest hated that position back in the, in the day of Christ because it was going to put them out of business. And let me tell you something. If people really believed the word of God as we believe it here and claim to believe it here, then it would put a lot of that mess out of business. A lot of people looking for a job. Number three, society. Another enemy of the faith. You say, society, wait a second, man. We love the world. No, don't misunderstand again. There's things about this world I love. I mean, in the sense of just, man, I love to have a nice house. You know, I can go home and relax. And I'm not talking about crazy stuff like that. I'm just saying, in general society, let me explain. With evolution as a foundational premise, society and culture have taken their cue from it. It can never be forgotten where all the lies originate. They start with Satan, who gives a lie, and that lie was permeated and, and, and continued to grow. And now, all of a sudden, we have a society that has been affected by it. Satan is the root of everything here. He's the real kingpin. We've already noted that he's a liar and the father of it. But note another interesting fact that the Apostle Paul addresses to the church at Corinth. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. Notice this This is so good. We're going to talk about society now for just a moment. And we're really not going to be long. So let's let's move quickly and... um, We'll, we'll finish this out. But Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. <clears throat> Let me ask you something. Are you okay with being called stupid? Yeah. Hold on now. If, I, I appreciate that statement because I, I didn't even finish yet. He's on the right track. If it means that you believe this book the way it's written, I, call me whatever you want. Paul said, listen, I, you know, they said, Paul, much learning hath made thee mad. Man, you, you're crazy, man. You're nuts, Paul. Paul went, guilty. If that's what you call it, I'm guilty, man. I believe every word of it. Proud of it. Amen. Just think what God could do with the people that look at the Word of God in us and say, you guys are so ignorant and stupid to believe that. Think about what could God could do if we could reach them with the gospel, what He could do with them. But well, we've got to keep trying to reach everybody because in the end, they're going to go to heaven or hell. But not only that, sometimes those folks have more influence than we could ever even imagine of having. Can you imagine what it would mean? Don't ever be intimidated by someone's intellectual ability. Don't be intimidated by their financial status don't allow that to keep you from realizing that you still have the one who's on the throne. You got the truth. Share the truth with them. Hopefully they'll receive it. They may look down on you. They may make fun of you just like Sanballat did to the folks in Nehemiah's day. But let me tell you something. Just, just hang in there. Just take, take comfort and strength in knowing that we're on the winning side. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. The Apostle Paul addressing the church at Corinth. Notice this now. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now I want to notice uh, note just a couple of things now then about society. We notice it here in the passage. First of all, we note the God of society. The God of society. You say, what do you mean? Well, notice it says in the passage, in whom the God of this world. Notice there's a little g in place of a big g. Down below it says image of God, big g, talking about God in heaven, Jehovah God. But this is a little g God. So there is a God of this world then that is not big g God. There is a little g God who is God of this world. And when it says world, I want you to understand that it's not talking about the physical earth world. Because we know the Bible says in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the physical earth is God's. So therefore the world then is not referring to a physical earth or globe. It's referring to a system. The world system now in which this little g God is God of, involves or includes economic, educational, social, political, even religious systems of this world. He is the little g God of this world system. When we look at the world, we don't look at it and go, oh, those are nice trees or nice cliffs. No, we look at the world and say, it's the place I live. Well, you live in a system You live in a place where there's uh, there's an economic system, and there's a political system, there's a religious system, there's a social system, there's an education system. All of that, all of that is involved here. In John 17 now, in Jesus Christ's priestly prayer, turn there now, chapter 17, verse 14 through 16, and notice what it says. John chapter 17 14 through 16 Jesus is preparing to go to the cross ultimately to be ultimately to ascend to the to the throne and he's going to leave the disciples on their own and he has a prayer now on behalf of his disciples notice the prayer and how it's going to reinforce this idea this thought of little G God being the god of a world system in which we live John 17 14 through 16 I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. There's a little phrase that I've learned years ago and you probably have heard this as well. We may be In the world, but we are not of the world. It comes from this passage. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Now remember, if the world is not a physical globe, in this case. The world is a system. And there is a God over the system. That is why Jesus said they are in the world, but they are not of that world. Because that system is governed not by the God of heaven, but by the God of this earth, so to speak, or on this earth, this world. The God being Satan. Now we know Satan is a liar. We know that Satan is a destroyer and a murderer. We know that Satan has introduced every lie into society. And we notice now that there is a little g-god over this whole system. So what is the goal then of society? In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them. You say, you say that society is the enemy of, the, of faith? Yes, indeed. Why? Because it is governed by the greatest enemy of all, Satan. He is the little g-god of this world system. Political, economic, social, educational. Um, Every aspect of this culture, this society, he is God of. And the Bible tells us that not only do we see the God of society, but we see his goal or the goal of society then as a result. Being the God of this world and world system, He is sure to use every single weapon at His disposal. And that includes every aspect of our culture and our society. He tries to ultimately thwart your effort and my effort, my pursuit, your pursuit of the faith. The real reason for the immoral bend of our society, the departure from God given roles and responsibilities. The loss of identity between men and women. The anti-God sentiment expressed by government and educational leaders. The introduction of evolution. The removal of prayer in the schools. The bias of media toward Christians. The rejection of religious symbolism. The emphasis of Sunday work, sports, and activities. The utter disregard and disrespect directed toward men and women of true faith. And the explosion of different faiths and religions that deny the God of the Bible, the real reason for all of them to destroy the faith. None of these trends is coincidental. None of them just came into being accidentally. They are all by design, diabolical in nature, mind you, conceived, constructed, and controlled by none other than the God of this world, Satan. He is the king ruling a kingdom. And he wants his kingdom to ultimately what? Elevate him above the stars of God. To be the most high. Finally, last, very quickly. Another enemy of the faith is self. Self. We notice... Satan, science, society, and finally self. We settle on truth. We settle it. We, we receive conviction of our heart as a result of our sin. The Holy Spirit of God drives home the need for Christ in our life. We say, I believe in Jesus and I believe in God and I trust in Christ and his finished work on Calvary alone to take me to heaven I place Him on the throne of my life. He's my King, my Lord, my God. And then we allow circumstances to sideline our faith. Faith is a fact, and it is unaffected by the ups and downs of life. Faith is just true. We cannot allow our emotions to trump our faith. You've heard it and I've heard it before. I don't understand. You used to be so faithful. You used to serve God and you used to be in God's house and you even used to go out soul winning and you used to teach Sunday school and you used to, and you used to, what happened? I don't know. I don't even know what I believe anymore. I don't even know if it was ever real. It was real enough to change your life. But now circumstances and situations have trumped your faith. Self can be the greatest enemy of faith. I know that the devil's a liar. I know that I'm constantly being inundated with false teaching and being influenced and impacted by a culture and society that is run and ruled by the God of this world. But still, when it is all said and done, I make my own choices. And who and what I permit in my life is on me. Sin in the believer's life is a choice. It's a decision we make. Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. We become the servants to those choices we make. I can blame the devil. I can blame science and even society. But when it all comes down to it, I got to blame myself if I'm not as faithful or fruitful as I ought to be for God. See, self can be the greatest enemy, one of the greatest enemies of the faith. Somebody may be hearing this message and they might say, wow, it seems like the deck's stacked against believers in this world, leaving little hope. I mean, you've got all these enemies. You got Satan and society and you got science and you even got yourself to face and deal with every day. That's all true. It can seem sometimes overwhelming. But even as Satan is the God little g of this world and uses every tool in his bag of tricks to distract, misdirect, and even destroy us, God being the king of our life has equipped us with the necessary tools and elements to successfully navigate the storms of this life. We possess the Holy Ghost who provides comfort, peace, and power to conquer. We possess the word of God that enables us to stand amidst Satan's lies and attacks. I mean, we possess the house of God that equips us for the purpose and plan of God for our lives. We possess the weapon of prayer that connects us with a omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. In 1 John 4, 4, he says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And of course, we come back to our verse now. Jude chapter 1 verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. With the enemies of faith attacking relentlessly in our culture, our churches our families, and even our lives. We must do all that we can to earnestly contend for the faith. It's going to be a battle. It's going to demand and require constant effort to ensure its existence. We must strive to obtain, defend, and preserve the faith at all cost. Someone says, Why are we wasting money, time, and effort on moving to a building? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we waste time going out on Saturdays soul winning? We know that the world doesn't want to really hear it. They don't really care about the gospel. They don't want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Why do we spend money on materials for our Sunday schools and buy buses and run them out into the communities? Why are we wasting all that money? Why couldn't we just, just... It just seems like there's so many things that we just spend money on. Why, why, why? We're contending for the faith. It won't be here if we don't do something. If we don't take the gospel to a world that's lost and dying and going to hell, the devil will snatch our faith. And there'll be a generation raised without it. And then there'll be no faith at all. Will he find faith when he returns, the Bible asks? May I say that you and I will determine that probably more than anybody now. It's up to us whether he will or won't. We must contend for the faith at all costs. Are you saved today? Do you know Christ is your Savior? You'll never, you'll never escape hell without Jesus Christ. You'll never make it. You'll never make it to heaven without Jesus Christ. I don't care what some teacher taught you, I don't care what you learned, I don't care from a parent, it doesn't matter what you learned from a teacher in a church somewhere, this book teaches that in 1 John 5, it tells us, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You either have Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you are dead in your tracks. You are sure of hell as the seat you're sitting in. But with Jesus Christ, you have life. And as he put it, more abundant. Make the right decision to come to him today. And if you are a child of God, how are you holding up to the enemies of faith this morning? How are you holding up? Are you standing for the Lord? Or do you find yourself being mastered by the lies of Satan? The deception of bad science? The temptations of society and the weakness of self? Confess your sin today. Consider the faith and come to an old-fashioned altar today right up front and recommit your life to the only one that truly deserves your life, and that's Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you.